Hey, hey, welcome back to the show. Today, I'm speaking with Michael Ventura. Michael founded Subrosa Agency, which is a multidisciplinary agency based in New York City. They provide strategy, design, and implementation solutions for Fortune 500s and some of the world's fastest growing startups. Not only is he the CEO of Subrosa, he also serves as an advisor and board member to many different organizations, including Behance and Burning Man. He's an adjunct professor at Princeton University. He co-owns a New York-based retail experience called Calliope, as well as an adjoining gallery called And and And. And not only that, in his personal time, he's also an active practitioner of Eastern and Indigenous medicine with his uh, coaching practice, Corvus Medicine. So safe to say, Michael Venture is a very interesting person. Um, He's done a lot for the New York City creative scene, and I'm excited to dig into how he balances it all and some of his philosophies and principles that he brings to his work. So without further ado, here's my conversation with Michael Ventura. All right, I'm here with uh, Michael Ventura, and I've been really excited to dig into his body of work because, like I said in the intro, this guy has a lot of different things going on, from running an agency full-time to putting out a magazine uh, every quarter to having his own podcast to having an event space. And so that's really the purpose of the show. The the idea behind the show is we want to find people who, what I consider to be uh, non-conformist empire builders. And what I mean by that is they have a lot of different projects going on, all successful, um, and they seem to somehow be able to manage all of these things at once. So Michael, uh, thanks so much for being on the show. Yeah, my pleasure. Happy to be here. Yeah, glad to speak with you again. Um, I, I wanted to get started with a question that I ask at the beginning of every episode, um, which is, it's pretty simple, but I think the way that people like yourself think about this question typically leads to a more interesting answer. So the question I want to start with is just, what do you sell or how do you think about what it is that you that you sell? Because I'm curious to understand if there's a, a through line there um, or if, if it's easy to sort of describe for you. Yeah, it's um, it's a great question because it's actually, uh, I think, the thing I've spent probably the most time thinking about myself. Um, when I started my first business, I was 23 years old and, you know, it's added and, and modified and adjusted over the years to kind of grow and swell and add new things and adjust old things. And, and, uh, there came a point where I was feeling like I was doing so much and so many different things. And that stress was overwhelming. But then I realized that, you know, through working with, um, with a really great teacher of mine, actually at the time, um, he encouraged me to sort of pull the aperture way out and to say, like, if I, if I, if I zoom all the way back and kind of take this all in, what, uh, is there one thing? And there is. And, and so I, I think at the end of the day, what I do really well is I solve problems. Um, that's really at the core of what I do. That's what I sell. I sell the ability to solve a problem. Um, but I do that through a litany of different mediums. Yeah, it's uh, interesting you say that. You know, I uh, started my company at 23. I actually feel like I'm kind of in that space myself right now where I'm feeling, uh, the way I describe it is a lantern instead of a laser. Like a lantern's <laughs> casting light everywhere and it's putting off all this energy, but a laser is really focused and sort of can get the job done. Um, so you solve problems. Is there a specific problem that you're solving or a specific kind of demographic that you feel like once you zoomed out was related to these different products that you're working on? No, I would say it was actually more, um, if there's a through line to that, it's, it's the technique through which the problem is solved. And that really, I think at the end of the day is empathy, um, and sort of not presupposing that I've got the right answer. Um, you know, the, the, the spectrum of, of things that I do that you, you know, you listed off at the beginning also includes, um, running a retail store with my wife. It also includes uh, a alternative medicine practice where I treat somewhere between fifty about fifteen people a week. Um, you know, and someone walks in like I had a treatment this morning at eight a.m. Someone walked in who's just you know got low back pain and stress and insomnia and all of these things, and I worked on him, and then I went downstairs and went straight into a client meeting, and they have internal culture issues and a new product that's being launched and holiday coming up. And while those ailments for both of them kind of seem different on the surface, they both are 
cured in many ways with the same technique, which is shut down your own preconceived notions, work with empathy, understand where they're coming from, see the different components in their, in their life and the challenges they're faced with, uh, and then bring forth whatever suggestions or solutions seem intuitive and, and logical so that they can get where they need to go. So what you've really done, it sounds like, is build a process that amazingly can work in many different scenarios. It's almost like your own version of design thinking, um, but it's kind of rooted in this concept of empathy. Yeah, it's the Michael Ventura design thinking process, but it's an empathy (laughs) is sort of the base of that. Um, I I definitely want to get into like how you balance things. It sounds like, you know, you had a treatment this morning. I know you were just on a client call. Now you've got this podcast. But before we get into that, what I'm curious about is kind of like one way I describe this is uh, to get started in an industry, you kind of have to ladder your way in. So you do one thing. If you find success there, then you can kind of take the next leap to the next project and it kind of builds from there. Um, I wonder if you can talk me through kind of in the early phase, like when you're just starting out, you said you started a company at 23. How did you find that early success? And then maybe what's like the next two kind of ladder moves um, either into, you know, your retail business or the agency or whatever, whatever it was that you went to next? Sure. Um, There was a uh, advisor slash um, sort of older mentor to, to a friend of mine who I was talking to when we were first getting the business underway. And uh, he had a very sage piece of advice, which was, if you don't get into trouble, you'll never learn how to get out of it. And I loved that way of thinking because what he was really saying was take risks and be unafraid to take risks because if you don't take risks, you're not going to learn. And so early on, really a lot of the, a lot of the work we did to get those first rungs of the ladder under our feet were relatively calculated risks. Uh, you know, I think we we would take on a piece of work that sounded uh, within our skill set, but probably just a little ambitious or like a little further than what we did the last time. Uh, so it was incremental. You know, we weren't actually trying to do something that was so leaps and bounds beyond our skill set that we were you know destined to fail. What we did instead was work on something that we knew there would be a degree of discomfort with because it was going to push us and challenge us, but it wasn't outside of the realm of possibility of, of making it a, a success. Yeah. So it's kind of like the adjacent possible, uh, but the keyword there being possible, it's not something that would necessarily like bankrupt you or, um, yeah, put you under. It, it was something that you could leap into. And if it worked out, it would help you kind of get to that next rung. Yeah, I mean, though, I will say there have certainly been instances where that gun's been to our head, too. Um, but I think that that is just that was the challenge of that day. You know, the the phrase that uh, we used to use, my, my founding partner and I were no longer uh, in business together, still very good friends. But he, uh, he was a very pragmatic technologist uh, who had a, a funny way with words. And so what he used to say is that our uh, that business is the amalgamation of problems and their mitigation. And, uh, and it was a very technical way of saying, <laughs> yeah. um, but, 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 it, but he was right. I mean, at the end of the day, that, that is, that was, that was, and still is what our, you know, what our business entails, which is there are going to be problems and challenges presented every single day. And it is about being a deft problem solver that ultimately, uh, serves us best. And so has that risk kind of profile changed, um, in terms of the new projects you take on, uh, and also, I guess I kind of want to ask, like, do you feel like the risk fuels you in a way? Like, does stretching yourself into an uncomfortable situation, is that actually a type of fuel that kind of helps you make that leap? Or is it something that is very painful, but it's just like a necessary component of this laddering idea? A bit of both. I would say the 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 tension or the sort of challenge that you encounter in taking those um, relatively calculated risks, uh, is, is, is exhilarating at times because you're, you're putting yourself through something that ultimately is going to, if, if successful, um, catapult you into an, another layer of, of your work. If it's fail, if it's a failure, um, that's still going to be a lesson and there's still going to be value in that. And I can, you know, the, the file folder of, of things I've fucked up over the years is definitely thicker than the file folder of things I've gotten right. But, 
Um, but that's kind of the point, right? If we're not trying, if we're not experimenting, if we're not testing and uh, uh, pushing ourselves, then especially as entrepreneurs, uh, you know, then, then what's the point? You know, I think entrepreneurs by nature probably have a little more of that risk tolerance. Uh, it doesn't necessarily feel... Um, What's the right word? Doesn't it doesn't feel innate in me necessarily? I don't think I was born with it. I think that it's something that I've learned on the job to get more comfortable with. I think in the beginning I had a lot of uh, risk intolerance because I was worried about what would happen. What would happen if the business fails? What would happen if you know we don't get this or we don't get that? And so you know I'm not cavalier about those questions now, but I am uh, my my scar tissue is a bit thicker. Totally. Yeah. And I think uh, one way I kind of describe it is you sort of like even out a bit where I think for me, year one, when it's just like this has to work or you go broke, it's you're stressed every day. Yeah. <laughs> like something every day is going to be a fire. And then the way I describe it is the next year, it's like every other day. <laughs> and then the year after that, it's like every few days. And now it's just like a bit more even keeled, um, especially if you built a foundation for yourself. Um, and so that kind of brings me to Sub Rosa, which seems like it's the very foundation that kind of springs forward a lot of mm -hmm. the other work that you do. Would you describe it that way? And um, was that your, I mean, you're still working on that obviously a ton today, but was that the hardest to build? It was, it is the foundation for sure of, of everything else that has sort of sprung forth, even in tangential ways, the, you know, the alternative medicine, because if I didn't have the stress of sub Rosa weighing on my shoulders when I was 25 mm. and herniating three discs in my back and getting brought to the hospital and finding alternative medicine as a way to heal that, I would have never found that. So I, you know, I, I owe a debt of gratitude to this business for, for a great many things. Um, you know, I think that what we've done with this place and I say we because it does take a village, even though there are uh, no more um, formal partners in the way it historically was. The thing that I think we got right in building it was that it's a nimble land of misfit toys, Swiss Army knife, T-shaped, you know, whatever kind of version of a buzzword or buzz phrase you want to use, uh, place that ultimately we're all here because we believe that there are plenty of organizations and leaders who need problems solved and we want to try to help them do that and by doing that we're learning how to be better leaders and a better organization ourselves. and then that creates a really nice springboard to things like Le Petit More, the publication we put out twice a year mm -hmm. or the creation of our own um, sort of design philosophy, like you mentioned earlier, it's it, you know we don't call it the Michael Ventura design thinking philosophy. We call it um, we call it we yeah. call it applied empathy, um, and we we teach this we teach a class down at Princeton University on the topic. We've taught three semesters on it. It's team taught by myself and several colleagues. Um, we have a book coming out next year on the topic. Um, we've developed a product line around it that we use as facilitation tools when we train clients or um, even just sell in, in certain boutiques so people can pick it up. It's sort of a kind of like a highbrow cards against humanity that instead of kind of you know hmm. making fart jokes, you're gonna you're gonna use cards to kind of elicit and understand empathy and, and how to use empathy to connect with other people in a different way. Um, so all of these things are matching luggage, right? All of them kind of connect together to the same core principle of we are a work in progress. We are continuing to evolve our own ability to be leaders and thinkers and doers. And empathy is a means in which to do that. Yeah, and I think the key kind of point that I guess I'm hearing here is that you don't really know where something's going to lead until you start. And it's actually, you you figured out this empathy thing, you figured out this process, all these projects, that only happened because you dove in and spent a lot of time building it in the first place. And then it kind of builds from there. And I think that's something I've sort of noticed too, is if you build a platform for yourself and bring a lot of people who are talented in other areas around you, suddenly there's these serendipitous things that start happening that you couldn't have expected before you started it. And I think that to me is one of the core reasons to start a side project, a business, a blog, because you just never know what will come out of it. That's right. I think that the it is absolutely a foundation. It is the, the engine that helps all of these other things become. And it is never the same thing twice because it is... You know, when, when we started the business back in the day, it was in an era when everyone wanted flash websites, right? <laughs> like it was, you know, 2003. 
right? So everyone wanted a Flash website, everyone wanted a microsite. Um, and so we were just you know, able to do that and we did that pretty well. And then eventually people, everyone wanted to do pop-up stores and everyone wanted to do sort of uh, like retail takeovers and things like that. So we started to add experiential to our digital business. And you know, over the years, the thing has continued to evolve, not just by what the phone rings and asks for, because that would be um, sort of a little too unplanned for my taste, but, um, but we start to see trends. We start to see the way the markets move. We start to understand the way consumers uh, look at brands and want to participate with brands. And the empathic thing to do is build an engine that helps connect those dots between what they want and what, and, and what the organizations want and do it in a way that ultimately is gratifying to us and our team too, where we can use great design and we can use interesting technology and we can build interesting um, strategies that ultimately bring these things to bear. That's really interesting because it, it sounds like the market is always changing. And what you've done with the empathy process that you've built is built a way for your team to naturally, to your own personality, adapt to those changes, but kind of keep its soul. Um, is, it, is this something where a lot of other agencies have a trouble with this, where all of a sudden the market changes, it's not flash anymore. Now they want microsites or they want social or whatever. And the agency adapts to them instead of having their own kind of fundamental process. And that leads them to not feel like themselves anymore. Like, I guess that's what I'm hearing is you've been able to keep yourself there the entire time as a team, even if the market needs new things. Yeah. I think that we've had a, uh, an agnostic approach to channel since the beginning, right? The, there are many specialty, specialty shops, right? There are shops that are exclusively focused on digital and social or content or above the line advertising or whatever it might be. Um, many of them have a fine business on their hands and are really great at being specialized and solving a certain thing a certain way. But yeah, to your point, if the wind changes and all of a sudden people don't want to do that thing you've built a specialty in anymore, then yeah, you've got to pivot or you're out of a job. And I think one of the things we've tried to do is live at a, at a layer slightly above tactic, slightly above channel, and really operate at a method, methodological level and say, this is how we solve problems. If we need to solve that problem through a digital channel, we have people who think this way, but practice digital. If we need to solve that problem through a physical real world challenge, then we have people who think that way, but operate as architects and as spatial designers and as environmental designers and service designers, and they can think about it in that way. So, you know, that's sort of the way we've, we, we've tackled it. Yeah. It sounds like a more robust kind of approach. And it's also interesting because a lot of the other smaller projects you've put out, like Le Petit Mort and uh, the question and empathy cards, that helps build you all as the leader in that kind of space, in the methodology. Um, it kind of provides more and more credibility there. Yeah, I think that self-projects, self-led projects like those and others have been, uh, what's a good way of putting it, kind of like uh, like stakes in the ground or, or mile markers for us to say that we've done a thing, you know, writing the book is, is the next one, right? That book will be out in awesome. March, April, um, manuscripts getting turned in in a few weeks. And it is really daunting, uh, especially amidst all the other things that are going on to also complete a book. But at the same time, it's going to be a really significant mile marker for the work we've done, the philosophy we've espoused for years to ourselves and our clients and a way to put it out into the world that I feel will, um, you know, will reach more people than we've historically done vis-a-vis -vis just client engagements. Yeah, it's it's hard to lead that charge, I think, when you've got to keep your eye on the core business, but then you know that you need to push a new stake in the ground further, but there's a lot that needs to go into that to make it really happen. Um, can you talk some about some of the benefits and outcomes of putting out those projects, like the uh, question and empathy cards? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that they have been really good artifacts of our thoughts. And that, I think, is something that when we, we live in a world where we by and large get paid for our thoughts, all right? The, the, the business of Subrosa is really sort of built, even though sometimes the work ends up being a website or it ends up being a retail store or, or an ad campaign or something like that, it's really intellectual property that, that we're being hired to create. 
and intellectual property is evanescent. It's, you know, it's, it's here one minute, one minute and sort of, you know, it's vapor. You can't touch it. You can't wrap your hands around it. You can't uh, feel it and smell it the way you can a product. And so for us, building something like Questions and Empathy uh, was a way for us to create something tactile that was emblematic of our overall spirit and ethos. And so as a team, it was really uh, culturally relevant and, and galvanizing for all of us to see that get made because at the end of the day, someone can hold that in their hand. Someone can give it to their significant other or a friend or a parent and say, this is the company I work with. This is something we made. And they can hold it and look at it and get Sub Rosa without having to look through a, you know, a 20-page credentials document. Yeah, so there's still this need to make something tangible. Um, I, I think I'm curious too, is the fact that it's somewhat of a game um, or almost feels like a game, does that help you with the empathy process? Um, and now might be a good time to, to speak a little bit more on that methodology when you actually do uh, start working with a new company or client. Mm -hmm. It is definitely uh, built to be participate, participatory and, and feel a bit game-like. Uh, we have used them uh, in a variety of contexts. We do them with clients when they want to get to the, know each other or know us better. I do a lot of speaking engagements where we use them with the audience in, as a tool to really help limber up a part of the brain that might be a little more atrophied. So the way we think about it is we've mapped out seven different archetypes that reside inside the deck, uh, the, the deck of cards that we call Q&E. And so each archetype has seven different questions that sit underneath it. So an example of an archetype would be the convener. The convener is an archetype that the behavior of which is to host, to anticipate the needs of others and create space, right? So that's an empathic behavior. If I know how to create space, if I know how to create an environment in which people will be comfortable and, and conversant, I'm going to be able to feel them. I'm going to be able to understand them better. I'm going to be able to elicit, I'm going to be able to use my skills of empathy um, more readily because I know how to do that. But for some people, that might be a really tough skill. Some people might be really overwhelmed by the idea of hosting and creating space. And they might more naturally be some other archetype in the deck. So what we often do is we help people identify, self-identify or through a process we'll go through where they have strengths and weaknesses, because we believe everyone is, to some degree, all seven of the archetypes. So it's not like you're just a convener and I'm just a seeker. You know, We all are all seven, but in varying degrees. So what we want people to do is understand, where do I over-index and where do I have some deficiency? Because if they can limber up that deficiency, if they can get more comfortable being a convener, that will help them be more wholly empathic that will help them connect with more people more often and understand more people more often and as we work on different teams and as we work on different projects and as we work with different clients the ability to be diverse enough and have enough dexterity that you can kind of plug into those different folks and show different sides of yourself and elicit energy and information and understanding from them in a way that helps inform your process, the better you're going to be at doing your job. So that deck of cards has been a very good example and uh, tool for helping people get comfortable with that. Yeah, you're providing awareness uh, that people didn't have before about the different types of people that might be on their team, about their customers. So you're really kind of just turning the lights on and saying, hey, we all act in certain ways. Um, we have these ways outlined here. If we learn this about ourselves and about the other people we work with or our customers, then we're aware enough to communicate with them in a way that they understand um, and it, it resonates with them. That's right. That's really interesting. So uh, that kind of brings me to hiring. Um, so I'm kind of curious. Uh, it almost made me think like it, it, when I'm uh, in an interview at your company, are you pulling out the cards and trying to figure out sort of yeah. where someone fits? But um, you spoke some about how we're in this, I guess, problem-solving information intellectual age, and that's what they're paying you for is uh, very much your mind and how that applies to different problems. Uh, if I'm somebody who wants to work for your company, what are you looking for? Because um, I think this applies to anybody who's just trying to kind of improve their skill set now. It seems like this is more relevant than ever. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I think that there is a lot of 
raw skills that we look at now as a bit, this isn't in the pejorative sense, but they're table stakes, right? If you walk in the door and you've got a proficiency in a certain application, or you've got, you know, 10 years as a business development person selling work through, great. Like that's what brought you in the door, but that's not what's going to get you the job. What's going to get someone a job and not just here. I don't think that we have such a, you know, unique high watermark for people. I think that this is becoming more and more the norm in these types of businesses is that we're going to look for your emotional intelligence. We're going to try to understand your comfort in with discomfort, right? We're going to try to understand how do you get out of your own shoes and think about things through the lens of someone else? How do you use empathy? So when I typically am in an in interview with someone who's, who's coming to work here, I'm not really looking at their portfolio or their resume. What I'm doing is trying to understand them as a person, trying to understand how they think, where they, where they uh, get hung up, where their own cognitive biases might be. Uh, and, and instead, you know, uh, or in addition, I guess I should say, um, understanding what their perception of where they're at in their own development is. You know, what are you working on? What are you aware of that is not sort of where you want it to be? Yeah, you want to see that, that and, they've developed some of their own thinking. Yeah, and, and self-awareness. And if they can say to me, you know, I'm, I'm really great at this, this, and this, but you know, the one thing that's really been hanging me up is that, you know, I just I have a blind spot for fill in the blank, whatever it is. And to me, like, that's the most valuable thing because everyone comes into an interview trying to present perfect. We know we're not perfect. I'm the furthest thing from perfect. Uh, but I, I think I have a, a decent awareness of where I'm not perfect and what I'm trying to work on, at least to some degree. And, uh, and to me, that, that's the interesting conversation to have. When someone walks in the door and says, I really am not great at this and I'm trying to learn how to be better about it, I want to talk about that mm. for 30 minutes. I want to learn how did you discover that and what are you doing to change it? And do you have the initiative to do that? And are you actually doing it or are you just talking about doing it? And like that, all of a sudden, you really start to see what someone's made of. Yeah. And so it seems like there's kind of a long process that someone needs to be taking on their own, um, not necessarily to be a good fit or not, but it's like there's introspection, which people need to develop from themselves. There's testing new ideas, which is potentially side projects um, and understanding their blind spots. Like that takes kind of a while um, to, to develop. If, if you were to give advice for somebody who's maybe just leaving school right now, should they focus first on that kind of core tenant, like you said, because that kind of gets you in the door, um, like build a hard skill in a specific area? Um, is that a simultaneous process where you're learning about yourself? I think I, I actually think you're right by saying it is a simultaneous process because the only way you're going to learn about the subterranean aspects of yourself is by experience and most of the way we get experience is by the cultivation of skills right so if you come out into the working world and you're a java developer well then you know you're going to learn a lot of java but you're probably also going to learn a lot about you know what it feels like to be managed and what makes you uncomfortable about deadlines and what collaboration is and isn't and where you come up short and where you excel and you might be having those experiences and be unaware of any of those answers because you don't know to pay attention to them or you might be having those experiences with enough awareness to say yes i'm having a hard conversation with my boss right now but what can i learn from this and why am i uncomfortable and is this actually something that i can grow from and is this this is this creating an opportunity um, there are types of people who just say fuck my boss he was an asshole today um, and then there are people that look at it the other way uh, and it's not a hundred and zero either i think we all have our, our moments where sometimes it is just fuck that dude uh, but sometimes it is more than that. And so it's it's important to be able to do a bit of both. Yeah, totally. So this kind of brings me to a good spot, which is, uh, in my personal life, a failing that I had that uh, led me to gain a lot more awareness was uh, I had shingles in October of last year. And that was kind of a huge wake-up call for me for a lot of reasons. I was overstressed. Um, it sounds like you have a similar story there. So I want to hear I guess about maybe your learnings through that process and then how that experience ended up translating into the business. Mm -hmm. So 
as I mentioned earlier, when I was uh, 25, uh, I was changing the water cooler at the studio and herniated a couple discs in my back and got taken to the hospital. Um, they said I had bone on bone. I had no discs left between my vertebrae and that there was going to need to be surgery and rods in my back and all kinds of crazy stuff. And I said that that doesn't sound great. And I would like to see if there's another way to solve this and ended up in an acupuncturist's office. And, you know, if I came in and my pain was at a hundred, I left at 99. I didn't leave at 50 or zero by any stretch, but I saw a crack in the door. I saw something that might have been able to help. And so I went back and I went back again and again and again. And then eventually I said to him, you know, I think that meditation would really be helpful because I feel like I have a lot of stress. And he said, you know, your whole back problem is actually all about stress. It's, it's you have nothing, you have nothing physiologically wrong with you. It's just you and your mind. Uh, it's overwhelming and it's, and it's creating a physical manifestation. And so, so he said, I think, I think meditation would be really good. And so I tried and I couldn't do it because I couldn't sit still. Um, because my motor was always running and he said, well, you know, maybe try Tai Chi. It's moving meditation. It's going to give you a different access point to sort of play with the idea of meditation because you're not going to just be sitting on a cushion. You'll be able to move your body. You'll be able to kind of, you know, be in a different state. And that worked really well for me. And then that set me on a, uh, on the buffet line of alternative medicine, right? And I went down the row and I tried a little bit of everything and I saw what I liked and I saw what I didn't like. And I ultimately built up a practice for myself that was helpful and that would allow me to get my body and my mind back in a place that felt right and balanced. And it's a constant practice. It's something, you know, you have to keep up because life keeps up. And if you don't keep up with your practice, then things can become overwhelming and you can get knocked over again. And so uh, I had done that for years. And then uh, one day I had a, a thought in my, I woke up from a, from sleep and had this very clear sort of thought in my head, which was those folks that helped you, um, have given to you a lot of information and wisdom. Um, you should go back to them and ask them if they would teach you so that you can help perhaps other people who are in other situations, not dissimilar to your own, or perhaps dissimilar to your own. Uh, and so I did, and they started teaching me. And then, you know, fast forward a couple of years later, I you know hung a shingle and uh, and started practicing. So I've been doing that since about 2010. So what were sort of the major, I guess, learnings there? Like, I don't, I don't think we need to get too much into the practice you have today or the process, but can you just tell me maybe some of like the awakening or like leveling up that you feel like happened through that process? The, the most the most top line answer to that I can come up with is to get out of your head and get into your intuitive center right the one of my teachers used to always say the mind tries to make sense but your intuition is sense right we get paid to live up in our minds we get paid to you know, be uh, sitting in a room and, and solving problems for people. And that, that's all happening in a very cerebral way for most of us in our, in our daily round. But there is a, uh, there's a different part of us that is, uh, true North, right. That, that, that is intuitively always there kind of pointing us in the right direction, but we have sort of moved away from that a little too much and, and drifted out of an ability to trust and to work from that place. So I think that if there's a meta lesson, it was don't let the thing above your shoulders drive the car. There's, 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 there's an intuitive center in your gut, um, you know, deep in your belly where, where, where it all started, where you were, you know, where you were first fed, where you first took life, where, where it all began. That's the real you get into that place and let, and let, let that drive everything else. And that's been sort of the, the, the training and the lesson. Yeah, I, I think that totally makes sense. And obviously, there's a lot of different texts and practices that sort of uh, teach that, whether it's yoga or meditation. I think the hard thing is, it seems like until someone points that out, then you don't actually recognize that yourself. And maybe that's kind of why it took a while for that to hit for you. Yep. Yeah, it had to, it had to, it had to take herniating three discs. Yeah. Is this something like this interest or this field, is this growing a lot? Like, are you seeing with your practice, um, that more and more people are starting to wake up to these ideas, be open to these ideas? 
Yeah, I think that there are more and more brands and companies and, and leaders inside companies who are mindful, quote fingers, in, 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 their, in their own ways, right? Some of them are meditators, some of them are yogis, some of them are doing you know, whatever it might be that's sort of you know, resonating for them. So we're seeing it definitely as an as a individualized trend among leaders and companies. There are, there's a difference between that and a cultural trend for the company itself, right? There's a there's a slippery slope or a fine line between being interested and supportive of that and kind of feeling a little bit like a cult, yeah. right? So there's so you know there 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 is a trepidation, rightly so, on the on the part of many companies, ourselves included, to not sort of jam mindfulness or wellness down people's throats um, because not everyone wants that, and it's not your right or responsibility to force it upon someone either so if they want to do it if they want to self-organize if they want to use their um, extracurricular budgets in order to uh, build a program around that great but um, you know making it mandatory or making it um, sort of uh, you know like shaming people who don't participate or things like that is just it's a bad look and i don't think that um you know that's not going to get people where they want to go yeah it's a tool to use um, so I, I'm curious now kind of how you manage your time. I brought that up earlier. You know, this morning you had a session with somebody. This afternoon you have client calls. Now you're talking on this podcast with me. You've got all these different projects going on. Have you figured out for yourself uh, the best way to sort of keep everything getting pushed forward in the way that it needs to be? Or is this just still a work in progress? It's It's a practice for sure. There are a couple things that I do. So one of the things is uh, my Tai Chi teacher years ago, I told him, you know, Master Ru, I love Tai Chi. I think it's great, but I can't do it every day. I just don't have the time. I get up, I take a shower, I get to work. And he's, you know, so Taoist. He just looked at me very straight faced and he said, wake up earlier. And, um, and so I, I get up earlier. It's now. always a simple answer, yeah, right? <laughs> exactly. So I do get up earlier now and I get up early enough to, you know, have my own practice before I see anyone else and you know, have my own time to myself and kind of get my head on straight before I, you know, it's like the, the, the wisdom of the, uh, of the airlines, um, put your, put your own mask on first before helping others, um, is sort of really true, right? You kind of have to take care of yourself first. So that's, that's sort of part one. And then the other thing that I think has been, uh, good for me and may not be good for everybody, but I, um, I really just try to hold to a calendar and yes, it is a full day, but I'm not thinking about what I'm doing next while talking to you. I'm here for this and I know that we have a fixed amount of time and when that time is over, I'm going to go do the next thing and the next thing and the next thing and the next thing. And yeah, there might not be too many breaks, uh, but it's a full day, but I, I can accomplish everything because I know it's it's been scheduled in that way. And one of the things I hold myself to is I try to, I think I get at least 90% of it right every day. Um, I try to clear the decks on my email every single day. I, I answer every email I receive every day within 10%. I think that there are a couple that I can, I know I can, if I need to sort of kick that down the chain for a day, I can do so. But that, you know, my, my, my inbox is my to-do list in many ways. So having that sort of being a constant reminder of how clear my decks are and how clear my schedule is. It's, I, I live between a calendar and an inbox basically all day um, and then go to meetings wherever I need to go. How, how are you slotting the most important or the efficient things into those bits in your schedule? Because it seems like that practice, I think, makes a ton of sense, but you also want to push forward in a, in a way that's efficient for all the different projects. Like, is that something where at the beginning of each week, you're kind of filling your calendar and saying, these are the most important things? Is it daily? Yeah, it's, a, it's, it's, it's minute to minute. It's, mm -hmm. it's, it's a constant reallocation of priority and, and a good uh, comfort with delegation because I know I'm only one person and I can only accomplish so much. So I think one of the things we've encouraged in not just our leadership team, but also in the, in the team at large is be smart about what you do and be smart about what you delegate because not everything is something you should be doing. Sometimes people will be coming to you and asking you for something, but it might just be because they didn't know who to ask. So don't just do it, but think about, is this something that's actually the thing that's the most valuable use of my time? Or is there someone else 
for whom this is a more valuable use of their time. Yeah, totally. Um, so we've got about 10 minutes left here, and I, I do want to get to some kind of final questions about hearing some um, pers perspectives or um, ideas about kind of what the future entails for Sobrosa. Um, but before I get to that, I did want to ask about Burning Man because I read that you were on the board, um, and I think that's kind of an interesting segue into hearing some about the community and how that sort of really helps support the work that you do. Can you, can you talk some about um, being an advisor and maybe a board member with Burning Man or other companies and just like how that fits into this puzzle? Sure. And to, to clarify, I'm an, I'm an advisor to the board. I'm not on the board. Um, but uh, the yes, the, the thing that I think I get asked to do as an advisor for for many boards or as a board member for other organizations. In fact, the next thing I do after this is a board call for a nonprofit that I'm on. But uh, the, the, the role I often have to play in those is the, the empath, right? Is the person who's going to not hear the problems and the challenges that are facing the organization or the company from an internal perspective, but to offer a sense of what's happening in the outside world and what people want or expect or need or, uh, or don't understand about this organization and how might we make sure those topics are getting addressed and, and, and galvanized internally into a solution so that ultimately we can fix these things because it's really, it's really easy to get into uh, a navel-gazing kind of process where you know, the, the board is really only talking about the problems that are bubbling up from inside the company and, uh, and lacking some larger external perspective. So oftentimes my role, be that with Burning Man or Tribal Link, which is a UN organization focused on indigenous rights, or Behance before they were sold to Adobe or you know a, a litany of others, has always been to have a, an attention and an awareness for the outside world and to, and to say, these are things happening. These are real things. These are real trends. These are real desires of your consumers, of the media, of Wall Street, of, of, you know, of policymakers, whatever it might be. And uh, how are we considering those as we build our plan so that we stay relevant? Yeah. And so it sounds like what you've done such a good job of is people understand that you have a particular point of view. You've got a perspective and that's the input that you can bring to the table in these different advisory roles or on the board, um, they know that you're going to bring that piece there. So I know that the company obviously uses this methodology. You've built some projects there, but I guess how does somebody position themselves in a way that they get seen as their unique perspective? Because everybody has something they can bring to the table like that. It's just probably not as well developed. How would somebody go about developing that for themselves? Because I, I think it's a great spot I to be in. For sure. It's more words, less deeds. Oh, sorry, the other way around. More deeds, less <laughs> okay, words. Yeah. Um, I think that it's easy to say you're an expert. It's easy to say, I've, you know, I've got an expertise in whatever it might be. Uh, the deeds are really where the rubber meets the road. Have you, have you written 30 pieces that have gotten published in different you know, op-eds and other online outlets that sort of you know, have taken your point of view and shared it? Have you, you know, been a part of the venture community in this space? Have you started your own business? Have you, whatever they are, right? And these are all business examples. They don't have to be, you know, you could be, you know, have you pursued a higher education degree in the topic or did you just, you know, read a couple books? Um, and you don't need one or the other, right? It's not to say like, I don't have a, I don't have a, a, a degree beyond a, a bachelor's, but, um, you know, I'm teaching at Princeton University. So God love those kids for, for, for uh, yeah. believing and listening, listening to me. But, you know, at the end of the day, it's because I've sort of, I've, I've put in the work. And, at the, and if you're not going to put in the actual work, if you're just going to talk about how nice it would be, the reality is not going to manifest. Yeah, yeah, totally. Um, so just to wrap up, and I definitely have, there's so many more questions I'd, I want to ask you, but... Um, I wanted to ask just like a few kind of uh, simpler questions. One thing was I looked at the about page on your on your website and everybody had their photo with all these different objects. Instead of uh, the photo of each employee, it was like just a group of different objects that sort of meant a lot to them is what I'm assuming. So I'm curious if there's an object there. I have a list if you want me to read some um, that means a lot to you. And if you want to just like tell us quickly why that is. Sure. You, I, that photo was, was probably taken about seven years ago for me. So tell me what some of the things are. Okay. 
Oh yeah. Okay. So there's uh, there's a scarf, eyeglasses, a hobo nickel necklace. Uh, you've got books, which we could talk about. Maybe a book or two that has really changed your thinking. That's an easy one. Um, well, actually, I'll go to the hobo nickel necklace first because I think that that's actually is one of my favorite ones. Um, so uh, in the era when nickels were actually made all of nickel, uh, which they're not anymore, they're plated. Um, they, you know, they're ultra soft. And so hobos used to essentially, um, ride in the, the backs of train cars, carving some, anything out of nickels and sort of making new faces on them or making different sort of, you know, little depictions and this and that. And my wife thought that, um, that I would find that interesting because I've always had sort of a fascination with sort of the, the vagabond traveler. And so, um, she, she found one on eBay and then, uh, she's a, she's a goldsmith and a metal worker. And so she, um, put a, you know, a hoop on it and, you know, put a, put a chain on it and gave it to me years ago. So it's, it's always kind of a, a reminder about, um, you know, kind of the, the, the whimsy of, of just picking up a bag and traveling and going somewhere and, and being able to cut and run if you want to. Um, so that's, that's one of the ones I really like. I know the, uh, the eyeglasses is a funny thing. So I have a bunch of eyeglasses on there because, um, yeah, I have, uh, you know, vision where, you know, I need to wear glasses when I'm sitting at a computer for a long time. But what's interesting is back then, um, I wore glasses all, every day, all the, all the time. And, you know, we're looking at each other in a video chat while we're having this podcast and I'm not wearing glasses. And, uh, and actually my vision has changed over the years through changing my diet, through, exercise through all of these things. I actually like really the only time I wear glasses now is like when I'm working on the book because it's just tedious, long-term staring at a screen. But, um, I actually have 20, 20 vision again. Um, That's so incredible. it's <laughs> Very super, interesting. yeah, it's super crazy. But like, so it's, it's funny that there are glasses there because it was a, it was an old me that wasn't taking as good care of myself and things have changed since then. Very cool. I think that's a great answer to that. Uh, both of those. So what I want to get to in the last two questions is really kind of how you see the future developing. I'm looking for some kind of forecasting, I guess, that you have. And I think the first way of asking that is who's doing really interesting stuff right now? It could be in New York City. It could be another business, an entrepreneur, somebody who's just an artist. Like, who are you watching right now and just saying to yourself, like, dang, either I want to be doing something like that or I'm blown away by how they do that. And I just, like, I want to learn how they figure that out. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I think I, I mean one of the people I go back to time and again for uh, sort of a, a, a humility check, I guess, for lack of a better term, is Elon Musk. Um, I think that you know if you look at what he's doing and the work that he's building across all of his businesses, it is uh, humbling. Um, and you, you, when you think about yourself as an entrepreneur, and then you look at someone like that, you're like, oh yeah, I'm, I'm actually doing fucking nothing. This guy is doing quite a bit. And uh, his perspective on doing the right types of things and doing things that are going to make the world a better place, a more efficient place, a more ecological place are really, uh, I think, inspiration and also a, um, uh, a little bit of an of a, uh, alarm bell for other companies. You know, there are auto companies all over the world who are scared shitless that there's a over billion dollar market cap on Tesla when they sell a fraction of the cars that some of the big five auto manufacturers sell because they sell a lot less cars, but the market looks at them in a way that says, this is the future of auto. This is the future of mobility. And you know, you might've been in this business for a hundred years, but you might not be in it for another 50 if you don't start to change the way you think. And so those types of pro provocateurs and people who are really challenging convention in different categories and different industries are, are fascinating to me. Yeah, totally. And it's such a big kind of goal, such a high level thing to think about. I think it's easy to get kind of tunnel vision for sort of what's around us. And he's just so zoomed out. It's uh, in incredible. Um, so the last question I can ask in two different ways. Um, one way of asking is if you had to quit your industry and start over, where would you start? Um, like what industry do you think is interesting? Maybe because it's in turmoil, like you were saying. Um, another way of asking that, if you want to pick up this question instead is what's something you're trying to get better at most right now? Like where are you looking to grow yourself? I think that the, 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 the initial image that comes into my mind, so I have no idea where this is going to go. Um, but the, 
it's it's um it's pastoral it's it's in nature more and it is you know i've i've lived in a city my whole life and i've worked in cities my whole life and i you know get out to nature quite a bit uh either for hiking or vacation or things like that but nature is not my home and so i almost kind of would reverse engineer from that because i think that that would be the most uh pendulum swinging thing for me would be to sort of find a way to live and work closer to nature and that doesn't necessarily mean in the woods um you know i i actually really enjoy the desert i i enjoy the woods i enjoy the coast so you know depending on uh you know i guess where where my wife and i would agree um finding something that would put me there and then figuring out where from my passions uh i could i could make a living um i would kind of i would kind of work backwards from from what would make me most comfortable yeah totally and i imagine whether it's subconscious or not that's probably how you launch your other projects too as they start manifesting so maybe uh we'll maybe mm-hmm. we'll see something nature related in the future um i definitely <laughs> want people to check out Sabrosa and a lot of the work you guys are doing your podcast which is applied empathy and that comes out every month is that correct that's right. Um, yep. Just do you want to point people to some other links where they can check out and follow along on, in your work? And we'll link that all up yeah. as well on the site and everything. Sure. So uh, the Subrosa website is wearesubrosa.com. The, uh, and you can check out the podcast via that. Um, you can also subscribe to Le Petit More, the publication we do through that. Um, the store that I run with my wife, uh, which is in the West Village of Manhattan, is uh, called Calliope. And that URL is welcome to Calliope. And then uh, lastly, the uh, medicine practice, which I've been um, really happy to finally have gotten a site up for myself because it's been sort of a a long time coming, uh, is Corvus Medicine, C-O-R-V-U-S. And that is, uh, you know, it's it's the genus of birds um, that crows and ravens sit in. And uh, and they were one of the first uh, animals that really showed up for me in this type of work as something that kind of helped me through some things. So it's a bit of an homage to them. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. Uh, yeah, just always really fascinating to hear your perspective. So, uh, yeah, appreciate you taking the time to chat with us. Same here. Appreciate it very much. Cool. Yep. Thanks so much. Thank you.